This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, Daphne. Tuesday. Ready? I'm ready. <laughs> we'll, we'll start with question nine. Okay, go ahead. So the mother of a one-month-old infant born at 30 weeks gestation is an adult dietitian and has been providing her infant with breast milk. She asks the neonatologist to compare preterm infant formula to mature breast milk because she's considering supplementing with preterm infant formula. She is specifically interested in the way to casein ratio in preterm infant formula. The neonatologist informs the mother that preterm formula has a way to casein ratio of A, 20 to 80, B, 40 to 60, C, 60 to 40, or D, 80 to 20. Okay. This is a tough one because you just have to know uh, those ratios. So choice A, 20 to 80 of weight to casein ratio, that's that's not a thing. So take that <laughs> that's out. That's right. Um, now let's look at the others. Um, is it uh, 40 to 60? Again, this is not a thing. Usually most of these ratios have more weight, less casein. So you're left with C and D, 60 to 40 or 80-20. So 80-20 is very particular because that much weight is actually present in only one really specific substance, that's colostrum. Mm -hmm. So uh, C, 60 to 40 is the answer. Um, okay, incubator team, uh, we're actually re-recording the answer uh, to this question um, because it was brought to our attention that actually a lot of the preterm or some of the preterm uh, formulas um, are actually changing their weight to casein ratios. So instead of being 60-40, some of them in particular, the infamil preterm formulas um, are an 80 to 20 casein or way to casein ratio. So just to review, uh, colostrum has a way to casein ratio of 80 to 20. Mature milk has a way to casein ratio of 55 to 45. Um, and that's why a lot of the um, predominantly whey formulas for full-term infants um, have a 60 to 40 ratio. There are some rare, uh, more less commonly used uh, predominantly casein formulas um, that have a flipped ratio of uh, 20 to 80. Um, those are the extensively hydrolyzed formulas, Alimentum, Nutramagen, Progestamil. Um, and then preterm formulas, I think we can say have a range <laughs> of weight to casein ratios from 60 to 40 to 80 to 20. So given that that is actively changing, I think it's unlikely to be tested, but we yeah. wanted to, to put this in as a correction for, for our listeners. Yeah. And, and, and we wanted to think, um, mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty sure he's a neonatologist or at least a neonatal neonatologist in training, but Parvesh Singh, who, who brought this to our attention. And, and it seems like um, it is an actively changing field, mm -hmm. as, as you're mentioning, where a lot of formulas are, are shifting. Um, so 
we did not make a, a mistake in reading the question off the book. So, so this is not like this is a, a correction on the book itself, but this is just a, a clarification as to uh, where things have gone since the books were published, since the questions were written. Um, so yeah, so you're aware that um, it's really between 60-40 and 80-20. Um, and, and again, they could still ask that question. I can still imagine them, <clears throat> in this case specifically, those two answer choices were there but they could make it where only one of these two choices mm -hmm. is there. So yeah, so that's something that, uh, yeah, and we're very thankful for the community to just uh, yeah. keep us on our toes and keep for us sure. informed. And we're, we're not pretending to be experts in every single field. So we're always learning and we really appreciate when we get together uh, as a community to inform each other of updates and, and changes. So thank you. Thank you, Parvesh. And um, now we can respond to his email telling him it's updated. It's been updated. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. That's right. So basically, like you said, colostrum, you just have to know um, a lot more whey. So um, whey is kind of the uh, more liquidy portion of, of, the, of the ratio. So um, 80 to 20 in colostrum. And mature breast milk has a whey to casein ratio of 55 to 45. Um, and so that's why the preterm formulas um, and all the formulas really um, try to approximate what normal breast milk looks like. So they have a weighted casein ratio of about 60 to 40. Okay. You ready for the next one? Mm -hmm. Question 11. Daphna, a three-month-old male born at 24 weeks gestation has a history of necrotizing enterocolitis complicated by bowel resection and a continued dependence on parenteral nutrition. Physical exam is notable for hair loss, seborrhea, and a scaly dermatitis. Mm -hmm. What vitamin is most likely to be deficient in this infant? And then you have five choices. Choice A is ascorbic acid. Choice B is biotin. Choice C is retinol. Choice D is riboflavin. And choice E is thiamine. So... For this baby, I, it's not A, uh, ascorbic acid or vitamin C, um, though it can present with a, with a rat, with a rash, but we're missing some of the other features. Um, C, retinol, vitamin A, same thing. Um, not all of the features I would expect. Um, that's really true actually for D and E, the ribo, the riboflavin and the thiamine, those, um, B vitamins, um, they can present with dermatitis. But when I think about really the skin and hair findings, um, I think of biotin and that is helpful because if you spend enough time in the shampoo aisle or the conditioner aisle, a lot of them have biotin in them. So it's to protect your hair. Okay. Um, yeah, so the answer is B, biotin. Um, you've mentioned that yesterday, actually. Biotin deficiency is associated with biotinidase deficiency. Mm -hmm. um, beta glycinuria, propionic go. acidemia, and pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency. The, the symptoms of biotin deficiency include alopecia, dermatitis, and seborrhea. Um, and so this really um, is what the vignette describes. I think it's interesting because they have these, again, Brodsky and Martin are doing a good job by swapping back and forth the names mm -hmm. of the vitamins. Mm -hmm. So ascorbic acid, as you've mentioned yesterday as well, is vitamin C. 
And as we've said before, uh, vitamin C leads to uh, poor wound healing, bleeding gums. And you um, you mentioned the tangerine and the citrus and transient tyrosinemia. Uh, retinol is actually vitamin A. And um, we talked about that yesterday when we talked about the pulmonary epithelial growth and cellular differentiation. Um, and so that really is important for that. Um, riboflavin is actually vitamin B2. And vitamin B2 uh, deficiency is associated with failure to thrive, photophobia, blurred vision, dermatitis, and mucositis. Um, and this may be found in uh, patients with glutaric aciduria type 1. Finally, we have thiamine, which is also known as vitamin B1, which we discussed yesterday again in that other question where it could cause beriberi with uh, fatigue, irritability, constipation, and cardiac failure. Um, you've mentioned yesterday as well that thiamine deficiency is associated with pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency and maple syrup urine disease. And you've teased us that this is obviously something we're going to see in the mm-hmm. section. Um, yeah, and symptoms of vitamin A deficiency, as we mentioned before, include photophobia, conjunctivitis, and abnormal epiphyseal bone formation and tooth enamel, generalized scaling, and failure to thrive. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we can um, predict that we'll see at least one vitamin question. And so just something mm-hmm. to commit to memory. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to remember what are their other names Mm-hmm. Vitamin K is uh, fitonodione, right? Or I might be pronouncing mm-hmm. this incorrectly, but it doesn't matter. But there's all these different names, and and they would and they love just swapping the name. And the question is not that hard, but mm-hmm. if you don't remember what is their other name, then you're yeah, you Creek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, question fifteen: You were taking care of a three-month-old male infant born at twenty-four weeks gestation who had surgical neck resulting in significant shortcut syndrome and malabsorption. He was receiving complete TPN. Based on his clinical symptoms, you suspect that he may have a copper deficiency. All of the following are true about copper metabolism and copper deficiency in the preterm neonate except. So which one is uh, not correct? A, Mm -hmm. ceruloplasm. (laughs) A, ceruloplasm. I can't say it. Cereuloplasmin. That's really we're we're really having trouble. We're struggling today. We're That's defining all right. today. Okay. Um A ceruloplasmin is a more reliable marker of copper stores than serum copper concentrations. B the classic symptoms of copper deficiency include hypochromic anemia, neutropenia, and osteoporosis. Copper deficiency in an infant born at 28 weeks gestation may not be apparent until two months of age. Copper is primarily stored in the liver, or E, fetal copper accumulation begins during the third trimester. Okay. Um, in residency, I had a patient, I guess we, we used to call them, you know, frequent flyers. They were always in and out of the hospitals, mm-hmm. um, but had a, it was a baby with Menke's disease. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, those those plasma and copper stuff uh, bring back uh, a few nightmares. Mm. The answer in this case, which one is incorrect? It's it's A. A statement says serialoplasmin is a more reliable marker of copper stores than serum copper concentration. So first of all, it's very difficult to assess copper stores in the in the body. But the reason serialoplasmin is definitely not more reliable is because 
many things can affect that, right? I remember that like you would have to be careful that the serial plasma level can change pre and post uh, blood transfusion. Um, so definitely not. There's some variability in the copper levels depending on where you get when you get them and so on and so forth. But it's serial plasma is definitely not like by any stretch of the imagination a more reliable marker. So choice A is wrong, and you'll tell us, I guess, why the other four choices are correct. That's right. So um, you're exactly right. So both, I mean, so diagnosing copper deficiency is is difficult in general because we don't have really good norms um, for copper concentrations. And both serum copper concentrations and the ceruloplasmin concentrations um, can be um, abnormally elevated, uh, particularly by blood transfusions. Um, and uh, so that's what makes this so complicated. And you really have to have a high index of suspicion uh, to make the diagnosis. And um, the classic symptoms are hypochromic anemia, um, neutropenia, and osteoporosis. And you reminded us that copper um, is red, uh, like a penny, looks like a red blood cell. And these are the symptoms um, also for babies who have Menke's disease, which is an X-linked recessive disorder um, that causes an inability of cellular absorption of copper. So they have severe copper deficiency um, and frequently present uh, with infantile, de infantile death. Um, this is, again, a really um, difficult thing to diagnose because you have to have a really high index of suspicion. Um, and it doesn't come up on our routine testing except for um, the hematologic abnormalities. So what do we know about copper um, in utero? So the fetus begins to accumulate copper stores during the third trimester, but babies that are born at 28 weeks or later often have enough copper stores um, to last them until about two months of age. And so that's why C is not the answer because it is true. An infant born at 28 weeks gestation um, may not show symptoms until two months of age. Um, copper is in fact, uh, stored in the liver. Um, and, uh, I told you that, uh, copper accumulation begins during the third trimester. If you get to make it that long, I think that's okay. it. All right. Next question is question 16. <clears throat> Um, as the rounding physician, Daphna, you're in the newborn nursery and you speak with a mother who is concerned about her medication intake and the risk to her infant if she decides to breastfeed. The mother has a history of depression and has been maintained on a selective serotonin... On an SSRI, you see, mm -hmm. on, a, on an SSRI throughout her pregnancy. In addition, she has been taking methadone to help with chronic back pain. She is currently receiving fentanyl and morphine, morphine for pain control after her cesarean delivery. Which of the following medications is an absolute contraindication to breastfeeding in this infant? And your choices are A, fentanyl, B, methadone, C, morphine, D, sertraline, and E, none of the drugs listed as an absolute contraindication to breastfeeding. So basically, when it comes to this, uh, the, the answer is there are very few drugs that are absolute contraindications to breastfeeding. And uh, I like to remind people that if you can give it to the baby, it's probably not a contraindication uh, to, to receiving breast milk that may contain some of the substance. So 
fentanyl, methadone, morphine, those are all things that we give uh, to babies. And um, we know that moms who use any of these medications during pregnancy, the babies may present with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Um, and we encourage breastfeeding in those situations. Mm-hmm. Now, sertraline, the SSRI may um, throw people off because there's been some debate about that. And it does have a withdrawal syndrome. Um, But uh, in general, I think the current practice, the current thought is that it's better to keep mommies um, uh, with less anxiety, right? Yeah. To stay on their um, chronic medications than to to come off. Um, So I'm going to say that eat. None of the drugs is an absolute contraindication. Yeah, you are correct. So I think the key for these questions are, what are they asking you, right? Because mm-hmm. there's many things that are associated with breastfeeding and these different medications. Number one, um, they're asking you an absolute contraindication. Mm-hmm. There is no scenario in which the mother can breastfeed the baby. Um, like you said, they're not asking you which one can cause withdrawal symptoms, mm-hmm. can cause uh, neonatal abstinence, none of these things. So SSRIs, um, like you said, there's some debate because even though they're considered safe, there's some case reports that show that these babies can have like uh, colic, they can have prolonged crying, but the risk of taking the mothers off for the benefit of alleviating those potential symptoms expose the mother to higher risk of depression, postpartum depression. And so the risk-benefit ratio there is not strong enough to uh, recommend uh, stopping or not breastfeeding the baby. Um, obviously, the thing that's important to remember is that for the um, for the case of opioids, right, so morphine, fentanyl, codeine, hydrocodone, all these things are considered to be safe, but they are expressed in the breast milk, even if in small amounts. Same thing with methadone. And so that's that's not a contraindication to, to breastfeeding. And like you said, for babies who do have, um, for the babies who do have NAS, actually breastfeeding may help wean them as the mothers are being uh, treated. Now, the key there is that breastfeeding is contraindicated if you are doing uh if you are taking illicit substances postpartum so a mother that has an addiction to illicit drugs where really the regimen is not being either monitored controlled or followed by by a provider that might be a whole different story in this case this mother is receiving morphine and fentanyl for the pain postpartum due to the c-section and the mother is um uh, on the methadone uh, treatment for chronic back pain, which is most likely followed by some of these. So yeah, if if this mother was taking illicit substances, it might be an issue. But in the context of opioids being monitored by a healthcare provider, these are there's no contraindication to to breastfeeding. Okay. Question seventeen of the following: Vitamin E deficiency is associated with a coagulopathy, b hemolysis, anemia, and reticulocytosis, C, macrocytic anemia and hypersegmented neutrophils, D, photophobia and conjunctivitis, or E, poor wound healing and bleeding gums? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question just because it helps you, it helps you just flip what mm-hmm. we've talked about and see if you can remember things mm-hmm. forward and backward. Um, I did have a a big part to play in our mm-hmm. drafting of our EPO protocol, which uses vitamin E. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. So, so it wasn't hard for me to know that vitamin E deficiency does cause hemolysis, anemia, and reticulocytosis. 
uh, choice B. But it's interesting that all the other choices are associated with another vitamin. And so I guess you'll, you'll tell us which one is which. But my answer is B, hemolysis, right. anemia, and reticulocytosis. That's right. So um, I think this could be a tricky question if, if you're not familiar with that. Because uh, when I think of vitamin E, like, you know, in my lay life, it's, it's all about like skin, right? So um, I think it could still be a tricky question. But vitamin E is an antioxidant. Um, we do give it a, as a supplement, um, when mostly when we're giving iron supplementation to prevent iron-induced hemolysis. So for lots of units, when they're giving epigen, where they give iron, they will give vitamin E, but it's to prevent the iron-induced hemolysis. And so I remember that because E... Epigen. That's how I remembered it. Epigen starts with E and vitamin E. So I remember that it is part of our um, epigen protocol. Uh, but again, it's not for the epigen. It's uh, for the associated iron supplementation. So what about the others? So A is coagulopathy. Um, so it's really um, vitamin K that can present, vitamin K deficiency that can present with coagulopathy. Um, and as most of us remember, um, uh, it can present um, with hemorrhagic disease of the newborn um, because in when you have enough of it, it um, assists with the clotting factors uh, 2, 7, 9, and 10. Okay, C, macrocytic anemia and hypersegmented neutrophils, uh, that's vitamin B12 and folate deficiencies present with macrocytic anemia and hypersegmented neutrophils. I did want to mention because this sometimes comes up in questions. Um, so for the, the vegan, um, for somebody who is vegan or vegetarian and providing breast milk, we can sometimes see B12 deficiency. Um, and then for a baby receiving goat's milk, um, we can see folate deficiency. So those are things to remember. Um, photophobia and conjunctivitis are um, effects of vitamin A deficiency. And then poor wound healing, bleeding gums, vitamin C. I think we have time for one more. Let's do it. Daphna, question 18. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Compared to cow's milk formula, human milk contains, choice A, less carnitin, B, less cholesterol, C, less docosahexonic acid. I hope I pronounced this correctly. Or DHA. DHA. Oh, Lord, I should have said that. D, more amino acids. Or E, more long-chain unsaturated fatty acids? Okay. In general, I feel like human milk has more of everything, except for a few things, um, than, than human milk. And I remember that it has um, less amino acids overall, except for carnitine. So that takes out A and D. And I know that it has all of these other good things, cholesterol, DHA, and especially those um, unsaturated fatty acids. So E. Yeah, E is correct. And um, as you said, uh, human milk contains a greater amount, a greater amount of uh, long chain unsaturated fatty acid compared to cow's milk. Human milk also contains greater amount of, like you said, carnitine, cholesterol, DHA compared to cow's milk. And most amino acids amount are lower in breast milk compared to uh, cow's milk. Regarding the fatty acids specifically, um, just because this is an important point that 
the, the fats is, is 50% of the calories in breast milk. Um, we'll talk about hind milk versus foremilk later on, but fatty acids and triglycerides are the most variable components of breast milk. That's something that I wanted to mention. It varies by gestational age, time, maternal diet, um, between women, between population. But in general, there's a greater amount of long-chain unsaturated fatty acids in breast milk compared to cow's milk. And the reason for that is that cow's milk also lacks the enzyme that to enable fat that are present in human milk. So that's one of the reasons why that difference exists. Um, and then again, as you said, the the cholesterol and all that stuff is is more prevalent in uh, in breast milk. So yeah, um, yeah, more long chain unsaturated fatty acids. All right, I think that's all we have time for. See you tomorrow. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.